0: We can find our seats. Chapter six, verse twenty-eight. Exodus, chapter six, verse twenty-eight. As you guys are turning there, I want to tell you uh, just a little bit of what we're going to be doing this summer. We're planning to stay in the book of Exodus till the end of the summer. Uh, well, not the end of the summer till the end of June. I'm sorry. We're going to take a break at the end of the ju- at end of June. Um, and jump into uh, a couple topical sermons within Scripture. Um, and we'll be back in Exodus in fall when we start our small groups up again. I would encourage you, if, you, if you're not a part of a small group yet, in the fall would be a great time to small or find a small group and um, join it and be a part of it. Um, we'll be starting up uh, Exodus again back in the fall after June. I think I said that right. right. This summer, we're going to see Daniel and Zach actually preaching a lot. Um, and the purpose of that is I'm going to be studying for a couple of classes that I'd like to teach coming um, this summer. The first class, there's three different ones. The first one is this. It's for high schoolers. It will be June 21st through the 25th. It's going to be Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to noon. So it's a two-hour class five, or uh, the whole week, Monday through Friday, each day, 10 to 12 noon. High schoolers will be expected to buy the book that we're going through, and they'll be expected to be doing the reading throughout that whole entire week, and come and be a part of this class for two hours um, each day of the week. And the class is going to be on presuppositional apologetics. Uh, It really is, uh, that's two fancy words if you've never heard of apologetics or presuppositionalism. Um, Those are two fancy words to really say it's a class on a biblical worldview. What is a biblical worldview? We're going to be talking about that, we're going to be diving deep into that. And it's really foundational into understanding um, our beliefs as a whole and what we believe as Christians. With that said, July 11th, so starting July, July 11th to the end of August, which I think is about eight weeks, we're going to be doing a class every Sunday at 6 p.m. for adults. So July 11th through the end of August, every Sunday at 6 p.m., it's going to be a presuppositional apologetics class. It'll be the same exact class our goal is to have childcare during that time. It will be an hour long, 6, six p.m. to 7 uh, p.m. Uh, then starting in September, and this is all building up to this, so starting to September uh, or the fall at some point, we don't know the dates or when or the details just yet, but we're going to do a class called Social Justice and the Gospel. Okay, social Justice and the Gospel. Um, we're really going to be examining the worldview behind the social justice movement. Social justice movement is a subcategory of a worldview that is prevalent in our culture in our country right now, and so we need to examine as a church what this worldview is is teaching and what this worldview says, and that will be the goal. The social justice movement has come from that. There is other subcategories of that: critical race theory, intersectionality. These words that we've been hearing in the media and throughout our culture. Uh, we as a church need to understand them, and so that will be the goal. And uh, the fall. Let me just say this: I, I, think this is extremely important. I've really spent the last year studying this topic, grabbing any book that I can find to read on this topic, listening to all types of lectures, sermons, uh, any subject I can find in this topic. I've been, I've been just diving in for a whole year now. Um, I believe this worldview, this worldview that has created the social justice movement, is the greatest threat to the church in 200 years. And I don't say that lightly. They don't like the name social justice. I've said this a number of times because it's not justice. just want to be clear on that. It's not biblical justice, which is true justice. They've actually redefined that word, this worldview as a whole. I like the term and title applied postmodernism. I think that's probably my favorite term so far. I hope it gets caught on. There's a couple of people saying it. Um, another phrase that's used is post-postmodernism, but I think that just gets... So, applied postmodernism, I think, is great. The ideologies that come from this worldview, which I believe is a false religion, the ideologies that have come from this worldview are entering into the church. And threat, threaten within the church, I think, more than anything, it attacks the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture being authoritative in our lives. The devil, I really believe, is using the compassion of the church spread false ideologies right now, false worldview that are antithetical to the biblical worldview. The devil's trying to destroy and devour the church right now. This is true spiritual warfare. In fact, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4 says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. In other words, we don't fight flesh. We don't have physical weapons, but have divine power, and that's the armor of God. That's our weapons. The armor of God to destroy strongholds well, what are the strongholds verse 5 tells us we destroy arguments we destroy ideologies we destroy beliefs that are that are separate from the belief the biblical belief the biblical worldview and i want you to hear that language we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of god and take every thought captive to obey christ Again, we destroy arguments. And to destroy arguments, we have to know them. We have to understand the ideologies. It's part of my job as a pastor to not only proclaim truth, but to protect from falsehoods coming into the church. And this is my goal in the fall, in this class. So just to recap, adults, July 11th through August, there's going to be presuppositional apologetics class, 6 p.m. to 7 What is a Christian worldview? We're really going to answer that question. September, starting September, we're going to look at a different worldview, applied postmodernism, which is different than the biblical worldview, and this class is going to be called Social Justice in the Gospel class, and we'll get more information as we get closer to that. With that all said, we would look at Exodus, not Ephesians, Exodus chapter 6, verse 28 Exodus chapter 6, verse 28 says this. On on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, uh, the Lord said to Moses, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Chapter 7, verse 1 says this. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. The egyptians shall know that i am the lord when i stretch out my hand against egypt and bring out the people of israel from among them let's pray Dear father god lord i just pray that you are with us this morning as we go over this important text lord this inspired text by you Lord, written by moses inspired by you lord i pray that we learn from your interaction with moses lord his arguments his doubts patience with him, but I, I pray that we as a church learn that, that we have a message to proclaim to the lost Lord. Now be with us this morning as we go over this text. Help us to, to learn from you, Lord. I pray that your spirit just illuminates the scriptures, Lord, brings conviction to the hearts of all of us. In your son's name, amen. Zach, the last two weeks, uh, And so that means we've been out of Exodus. He picked a pretty difficult topic, um, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and how they relate. And of course, that really ties into the sermon series that we've been going through, through the book of Exodus. Today, I want to get into Exodus chapter 7. And I want to say in Exodus chapter 7, that there's actually a major shift that happens in the narrative that we've been following so far in the book of Exodus. And I want to see if you can see it. Look at verse 6. It says this. I haven't read it yet, but it says this in verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Did you see it? Look at verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded them. I hope you saw it. Up to Exodus chapter 7 verse 6. Moses over and over and over again doubts God. Questions God argues with God. Then we get to chapter 7, verse 10, and it says, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded him. In fact, really from this point on, we see Moses just faithfully obeying God over and over and over again until they get into the wilderness. There's a major shift that happens in chapter 7, because in chapters 3, 4, five, six, in the beginning of chapter seven, Moses over and over and over again just argues with God about his commissioning, about his calling. Think about that. That's four and a half chapters of arguing with God. When you read through the beginning of Exodus in the book of Exodus, you can't overlook this portion of scripture. How much is written, how much time is given to Moses' struggle with his calling? One theologian put it this way, Exodus gives us much more attention to Moses' unbelief and resistance to God in his adult life than it does to the sins of his youth, even though his youthful sins included killing a man. you Think about that. Obviously a defining moment in Moses' life, but we only have a couple verses on that. It is not that the importance of of the earlier failings is minimized, but that... Moses' lack of faith and unwillingness to obey a direct commission is, in God's eyes, a serious act of disobedience. Because of this, and because how much time is given in Exodus, before we move on to the faithfulness of Moses, I think it's important to review Moses' struggle. Starting back in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush, it says this in Exodus chapter 3, verse 9, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel came to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians have, or Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you, Moses, We're going to send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I just want to be clear, verse 10, this is a command, and we see it um, articulated differently, but over and over again with the word, go. Moses, go. Moses' first response is found in verse 11, Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. Moses asked, "Really, who am I? Who am I that you would send me?" Exodus 3:11. But Moses said to God, "Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt?" God's response to Moses is just clearly, "But Moses, I'll be with you." Which leads to a second question that's found in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 where I believe God, or Moses asked God, well, if you're going to be with me, then who are you? Exodus 3.13 says this, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? In other words, who are you? What does it mean that you are Yahweh? What does your name mean? And God responds by simply saying, I am who I am. Go, Moses. Listen, Moses, I'm about to show you who I am. I'm about to show you what it means that I am Yahweh. You're about to see what it means, which I believe is really the heart of the book of Exodus. God is revealing his name to Egypt, to Israel, and to the nations. Back, God is revealing his name to us as we go through the book of Exodus. Which brings us to Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Moses questions God again, saying, The elders of Israel won't listen to me. There's no way they're going to listen to me. God responds by giving Moses three miraculous signs to show the elders. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Moses says, Well, I, I don't speak well, God. He says this in verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. He maybe had a speech impediment, it seems that he had some trouble speaking for some reason. I don't know exactly what that looked like or what it was. God responds by saying that he is sovereign even over says in Exodus 4.11, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? In other words, he tells Moses, Moses, who's made your mouth? Who gave you that speech impediment? You know, for someone who fumbles over his words all the time, this is such a comforting verse to me. God's made me exactly the way he's wanted to make me. He made Moses exactly the way he wanted to make Moses, to use him for a purpose. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, Lord? Not only that, but then God promises that he will be with Moses' mouth in verse 12. Therefore, go, right? There's that command again. Go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Exodus 4 verse 13 Moses is really out of excuses at this point and so he just pleads with God please send someone else God in his kindness and patience and really fatherly love and I hope you have seen as we've gone through these passages throughout the last few months that God is just patient with Moses and he says to Moses alright I'll send Aaron with you but you're still going Exodus 4.15, you shall speak to him, that's Aaron, and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. God will teach Moses what to say, in other words. Moses will tell Aaron, Aaron will uh, speak for Moses to to Pharaoh. God will be with both of them. We get to the end of chapter 4, and Moses finally goes and talks to the Israelites, and they believe, which was a major victory in Moses' sight. In fact, it says this in verse 31, And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their afflictions, they bowed their heads and worshipped. In other words, after Moses went to the Israelites, not only did they believe, but they prayed to Yahweh and they worshipped him. Moses, this was a huge victory. That was one of his biggest fears is the Israelites wouldn't listen to him. So from there, confidently, he goes to Pharaoh. In Exodus 5, verse 1, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord. That's a proclamation of a prophet. Thus says the Lord. We see the boldness of Isaiah and Ezekiel and the prophets saying that phrase over and over again. Thus says the Lord. This shows that Moses and Aaron went in the beginning of chapter 5 in boldness and confidence. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And of course, Pharaoh didn't listen, which is exactly what God told Moses beforehand. Instead, he makes the slavery of Israel, the harsh slavery, even harder, in fact, impossible. I believe the goal in this was to stop a rebellion that Pharaoh was terrified of. To stop the Israelites from rebelling against the Egyptians. So he made the slavery impossible to break their spirit. In fact, I think he was trying to work most of them to death. Which leads to one of the most discouraging and honest prayers in all of scripture. Exodus chapter 5 verse 22 says this, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh lord why have you done evil to this people why did you ever send me for since i came to pharaoh to speak in your name he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all moses once again falls back into questioning god he questions god's goodness and love he says why have you done evil god why have you done evil to this people he questions God's wisdom. Why did you ever send me? And Moses is saying by asking that question, is you should have listened to me. You should have sent someone else that, that speaks well, that's eloquent, that's respectable. Maybe Pharaoh would have listened to him. And how does God respond? Amazing to me, not in anger, but with encouragement patience and gentleness like a loving father. Exodus chapter 6 verse 1 it says this but then the Lord said to Moses now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh for with a strong hand he will send them out and with a strong hand he will drive them out. And God gives this amazing poem a poem of encouragement to Moses. We spent weeks on this poem. It starts in Exodus chapter 6 verse 2 God spoke to Moses and said to him here's the poem I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am from God to Moses to encourage Moses. And this, God tells Moses once again, go. Go and speak to Israel. Exodus chapter 6, verse 9, Moses goes and says this, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. The second time that Moses has gone to the people of Israel, this time it's different though. Look at the response, verse 9. But they did not listen to Moses. Because their broken spirit and harsh slavery. In my opinion, in the first half of Exodus, this is the lowest point for Moses and Israel. Think of the roller coaster Moses has been on up to this point. The end of chapter 4, not only did he go to the Israelites and listen to God, but the Israelites believed him. They worshiped and prayed with Moses. And Moses from there confidently went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord. But then we get to chapter 6, verse 9, after the response of Pharaoh with harsh slavery, and it says this, They, the Israelites, this time, did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Not only... That Pharaoh not listen to Moses in chapter 5? He took out his anger on the Israelites. He gave them impossible tasks. Broke their spirits. And it becomes clear in this passage, our passage today, that Moses feels like a failure. Which leads to an important question that I think has massive implications. Did Moses fail when he went to the Israelites when he went to Pharaoh? The answer is no. Listen, God never asked Moses. He never gave them, Moses the task to convince Israel or Pharaoh. He just told Moses to go and take a message. And I think this, in all the chapters that we have seen and the review that we just did, is really the struggle that Moses has. This is where the struggle comes from. He didn't understand his true calling. He was to deliver a message. He was never called to change people's hearts. Israel's hearts or or Pharaoh his heart. Moses had no power over people's hearts. He was called to just deliver a message brings us to Exodus 6 verse 10 which says this so the Lord said to Moses go always a command go go in tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land verse 12 but Moses said to the Lord behold the people of Israel have not listened to me how then shall Pharaoh listen to me for I am of uncircumcised lips just another way of saying I'm an eloquent of speech, I'm slow of speech. Moses thought, well, Israel hasn't listened to me, a bunch of slaves. How is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful nation of the world at that time, going to listen to me? Remember, convincing Pharaoh was never his calling, he was called to deliver a message. Which brings us again. To Exodus six twenty-two or twenty-eight, it says this: On that day, when the Lord has spoken to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, "I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you." And Moses said to the Lord, "Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me?" I just want to say this: This is the last excuse Moses makes exodus from here on out in chapter 7 at least until they get to the wilderness Moses is just faithful and I think understanding chapter 7 and the next few chapters after chapter 7 you really need to pay attention to three main characters this is going to sound weird but three body parts just listen three main characters and three body parts here they are Moses' lips, Pharaoh's heart, Yahweh's hand. Moses' lips, Pharaoh's heart, Yahweh's hand. And this is going to repeat itself over and over and over again in the next two chapters. Let me just start with Moses' lips. Again, Exodus 6 verse 28 says this, On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? I want you to hear God's response, because this is pretty amazing. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Think about that. Moses is complaining because he doesn't speak well complaining because he has uncircumcised lips, slowness of speech, and God says to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. In Hebrew, it's actually more emphatic. It literally says, I have made you God to Pharaoh. I think the metaphor is implied. I like the NASB's translation. It says this, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. In other words, Moses' lips, right the part that he complains about more than anything else, The thing he can't change because he has some kind of impediment that's been been given to him sovereignly by God. What he's been focused on will function with divine authority as he goes and speaks to Pharaoh. As if God himself was speaking. It's important to keep in mind in this passage that Pharaoh considered himself to be a god. Peter Enns writes, theologian, he says this, in Egyptian ideology, the Pharaoh was considered to be a divine being. So by calling Moses God, Yahweh is beating Pharaoh at his own game. It is not the king of Egypt who is God. Rather, listen to this, it is the shepherd and leader of a slave nation who is God. A shepherd and leader of slaves who is God. What does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. A shepherd and leader of slaves, who is God? Moses, clear, is not divine. He's not God, but he is a type of Christ. In other words, his life points us to Christ. He points us to God incarnate. Peter ends, keeps going, and this Moses God defeats Pharaoh in a manner that leaves no doubt. As to the true nature and source of his power, he controls the elements, bugs, livestock, fire from heaven, and the water of the sea. He even has authority over life and death. Moses is not simply like God to Pharaoh. He truly is God to Pharaoh in that God is acting through Moses to Pharaoh. Moses' uncircumcised lips will be speaking with the authority at verse 1 again chapter 7 verse 1 it says this and the Lord said to Moses see I've made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet you shall speak all that I command to you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land out of his land in other words God is going to teach Moses what to tell Aaron Aaron's going to take what Moses has told him to Pharaoh and speak it and proclaim it to as I know, I think this is great insight on the role of a prophet The prophet in the Old Testament was not primarily an informed communicator or debater who has worked out for himself an appropriate argument or message instead, the prophet was commissioned by God to deliver a message, a message given to him by God it was God's message he is to speak leads us to the second character and second body part, Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart, as we've talked about and we will see, becomes a major theme in the next few verses. In fact, it's mentioned 20 times. Look at verse 3, it says this, but I, this is God, this is Yahweh, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. The second time he has said that I will, will harden Pharaoh's heart. The first time is found in Ephesians 4.21, which says this, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Again, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is an important theme in the book of Exodus mentioned 20 times and it's described in three different ways sometimes the bible says pharaoh has hardened his own heart exodus eight fifteen is an example of this it says this but when pharaoh saw that there was a respite he hardened his heart other times the bible just says pharaoh's heart was hardened it doesn't give who hardened pharaoh's heart specifically in the Near context, it says this in the same verse that we're in, Exodus seven thirteen, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And finally, God very clearly identifies himself as the one hardening Pharaoh's heart. Exodus four twenty one again, but I will harden his heart. Exodus seven three, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Talked about this before, but this perfectly illustrates the doctrine of compatibilism fancy word compatibilism comes from the word compatible not really that difficult to understand all it means is that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are compatible are in harmony even go together another way of saying this is is this God is sovereign over man's choices yet man is still responsible for his choices choices matter, our choices matter they're real how does that work, how can God be sovereign over our choices and yet we still have uh, real choices and we're responsible for them I don't know I don't know it's a mystery the Bible just states both just like the Bible states that there's one God in three persons, how does that work I don't know but I believe it this is authoritative, not my own reasoning. Part of presuppositional apologetics. What I do know for sure is that God is telling Moses he is in control. Not Pharaoh. He's in control of everything, not Pharaoh. In fact, God is going to use, listen, Moses' lips to harden Pharaoh's heart so that God's name would be known so that he could reveal what it means that he is Yahweh, so that God would be glorified. Which leads us to our last character and body part, Yahweh's hand. Look at verse 4. If Pharaoh will not listen to you. And Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I, this is Yahweh, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Super important. Moses' lips will be used to harden Pharaoh's heart so that Yahweh could stretch out his hand against Pharaoh with great acts of judgment. And why? Why would God want to do this? Well, verse 5 tells us why. That the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. If you haven't been around, capital I D just replaces the name of the Lord, Yahweh, which Austin is going to tell us isn't the correct pronunciation of that word, but I'll let him explain it when he gets up here one day. <laughs> this is the heart of Exodus. God is revealing his name, revealing what it means that he is Yahweh. Remember, in Exodus 3.15, it says this, God said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. It's the heart of Exodus. God is revealing his name. Remember Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. This is Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh? Well, he's about to find out. That's the point. Who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. So Moses, is, or Pharaoh is about to find out who Yahweh is. God is going to use the rebellion and disobedience of Pharaoh to reveal to display his glory for generations and generations and generations to come. In fact, even our generation. This is why God raised Pharaoh up. Exodus 9.16 makes that very clear. But for this purpose, I, that's Yahweh, I have raised you, that's Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name is May be proclaimed in all the earth. I want you to see this, okay? Look at verse two. Follow along with me. Chapter six, verse or chapter seven, sorry, chapter seven, verse two. You shall speak, that's Moses, that's Moses' lips. You shall speak Moses' lips. All that I command you, and your brother Aaron, shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. That's Pharaoh's heart. How is it hardened? By Moses' lips. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand, there's Yahweh's hand, on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And here's why. Verse 5. The Egyptians shall know I am Yahweh. That's the purpose. That God's name would be known. That God would be glorified. Again, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel, And Moses' problem in chapters 3 through 7, as he struggles with God in his calling and commissioning, is that he had a wrong expectation of success. He had a wrong understanding of his calling. He thought success was convincing Pharaoh and Israel, changing their hearts. Moses should have defined success as faithfully delivering a message, and that's it. And trusting God for the results. To use that message any way God saw fit. In the case of Pharaoh, he saw fit to harden his heart. Exodus 9.16 again makes this very clear. For this purpose, I, that's Yahweh, I have raised you, Pharaoh. Pharaoh up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth in Exodus God is determined to use Moses' lips to harden Pharaoh's heart so that God could stretch out his hand against Egypt verse 5 that the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh so that God's name may be known be proclaimed in all the earth, Exodus 9, 16. That God's name would be known. That God would be glorified. Now, there's some major implications to this that we're going to save for next week when it comes to the church and what our calling is as a church. But I want to say this because I think some of us struggle with this idea that God is all about his glory that God is all about his glory and he will make sure that he is glorified the reason we struggle with this is because it sounds selfish but here's the difference between God glorifying himself and anyone else trying to do that God's glory is man's greatest good therefore when God glorifies himself we find joy and satisfaction it's our greatest good Let me just illustrate this and make this very clear. What is the greatest or most glorious thing that happened in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation? What brings God more glory than anything else from generation to Revelation? You can say it out loud. Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross and the resurrection. What is our greatest good? Jesus' death on the cross and the resurrection. God is all about his glory to our good. In fact, if God would hide his glory, if God would make something else what he is all about, he wouldn't be loving. In fact, let me just say this. I'm off my notes. We're late, but whatever. The definition of love. In our culture, the definition of love is making much of someone self-esteem culture, so we make much of that person and then we call that love. That's not love. Definition of love should be making much of God for that person. Pointing that person to God's glory. Because God's glory is that person's greatest good, not much of themselves. Think about that. Therefore, God glorifying himself is the greatest thing he can do for us and for his glory chief end of man is to glorify god and enjoy him forever and the reason that and is in there is because god's glory is our greatest joy i can go on about that but there's major implications that, on this that i want to talk about next week for the church and let me just say this the church has been given a message just like moses has the gospel the good news just think about that for a second That's what the gospel means, it's good news, it's news. News is meant to be proclaimed. It's information that is proclaimed as truth. I know we're redefining that too, but... Our calling as a church is to deliver a message, not change people's hearts. We trust God to change people's hearts as we deliver the message. But our calling is to faithfully and accurately and clearly deliver the gospel message to the nations in fact my calling as a pastor is to preach this faithfully the message that has been given to us to proclaim it from this pulpit in fact i asked for this pulpit to be back up here this sunday i really love this pulpit it's big More than that, it symbolizes where the authority rests. It doesn't rest in me as a preacher. In fact, last two weeks I sat with you guys listening to someone else preach. As long as this is faithfully proclaimed and preached, the message is faithfully delivered, this is where the authority is. That's why the center of this building is this pulpit. Because the word of God is the authority. The church is losing that right now. The authority of Scripture. It's important we understand exactly why and what is happening. That's why these classes are going to be so important. But I want you to see that we are called to proclaim a message and trust God with the results. And listen, when we proclaim the word faithfully, it won't come back void. It won't come back empty. It will accomplish God's purposes. Either to soften hearts or harden hearts, but it will accomplish God's purposes. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I pray for our church. I pray pray for Country Oaks, Lord. God, I pray that you protect us, Lord, from false ideologies, from the idea that there's authority that is more authoritative than you. That's ridiculous. An authority that's more authoritative than your word. God, I pray that this church always elevates your word, Lord, as the ultimate authority over everything. Help us, Lord, as Christians, submit to the truth that's found in your word. Submit to the message that has been given to us. And Lord, I pray that we faithfully and boldly proclaim it to a lost world. That we send cross-cultural workers to countries that have never heard the truth, Lord. That they deliver that message clearly and faithfully. That we proclaim that message, the good news of Jesus Christ, to our community faithfully and clearly and that we understand that success is faithfully communicating the message and trusting you with the results. God, help us learn from Moses, that we would be bold in our proclamation of the truth, that we would be gentle and loving and kind and compassionate, but bold. Be with us in your son's